Right, I'm going to start with, uh, as we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, and the point of this lecture isn't to be exhaustive on this subject. Obviously, it's just one talk, and we're going to have time tonight for some discussion and uh, um, questions and whatever. So I think last time we did two talks on Friday night. We're just going to do one tonight. And uh, so let me just begin with two passages of Scripture. You remember in... Uh, in Matthew 22, Jesus, as he often was, was being challenged uh, by the Pharisees and or the Sadducees and uh, with questions trying to uh, trap him or catch him. And uh, in this case, he had both, first the Pharisees and then the Sadducees. And you remember they're asking him questions about uh, marriage and heaven and uh, that kind of thing. So... And then he answers in verse 29 of, of chapter 22. Um, I mean, imagine saying this now to the Sadducees, who, if he said, who, who knows the Bible, uh, who knows Scripture, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus says, you are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. And uh, so I, I, I wanted to read that just as a reminder to all of us that the Bible is a living, the living Word of God, the abiding Word of God, the everlasting Word. It is, um, it's unique, and it's therefore every time we go to it, uh, even if it's a passage we've gone to many times, uh, there are things to be learned. Uh, but not because it changes, because it's unchanging, uh, but we change. The world changes. So we come back, we're older, we have a new experience, we're now looking at it uh, from a new perspective in that sense. So we're the ones that are changing, that are being changed, and the Word of God is changing us, and that's why we do need to go back to it over and over and over. And we also don't need to trivialize the Bible by reducing it to Bible trivia. You know, what, what facts do we know? How many... Uh, questions can we answer? It's not that that's bad. In fact, that's necessary and essential. But what we don't want to do with that is turn it into the whole thing. And I think that's what Jesus was addressing here uh, with the Sadducees uh, and the Pharisees. Is yeah, I think you, we could paraphrase it like, yeah, you know the Bible at one level, but you're missing the point. You're you you're not knowing it at the level where it's the most critical. And uh, you're, you're trying to turn this into a game of tic-tac-toe with the Bible where you can win, where you can defeat somebody, a kind of a gotcha situation. And that's not how we want to use the Bible. That's not its purpose or intent. And, of course, the other passage that you're very familiar with that is very critical to this question of the sufficiency of Scripture is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And by the way, Sunday school on Sunday, I'll be teaching on inspiration. Uh, but um, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, literally, it's God-breathed, uh, meaning not um, it's not inspiration like, uh, you know, you were inspired by a beautiful sunset to paint a picture or write a poem. Not that kind of inspiration, but literally... It's God-spoken. It, it comes from God. All Scripture comes from Him and is profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, 
reproof, uh, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or mature. So maturity is the goal, that not, not just in the sense of knowing the Bible in some um, academic way only, but that the goal of the, of the Scriptures is to produce a mature, perfect, Christ-like man, um, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That, so that the man of God may be complete, we could say mature, grown up, Christ-like. That's what the Bible is for. And we, if we keep that in mind as we talk about various aspects of this tonight and tomorrow, that's the critical thing. Um, so with that said, uh, we're going to be looking a bit here as we talk about sufficiency of Scripture is some of the debate or discussion over just exactly what is the Bible to be used for. Is it limited in its scope? Uh, is it speaking, say, of just spiritual things? Uh, is it the... Uh, we'll talk, talk more tomorrow about the authority of Scripture in more detail. But the Bible, uh, the Bible's claims to authority tend to be general. It says, again, as we just read here, that it is given to equip us for every good work. But the question is, is that meant in what we call the moral sense or the restri- religious sense in a restricted way? So you have your spiritual life over here and and so this is here to direct you how to how to have a godly and spiritual life uh, but or is it meant also as some would say to includes man's preparation for the so-called secular areas of life does the bible speak to things outside of your religious life even more important is the problem uh, when we ask those questions that's raised by the so-called religious secular distinction itself. Yes. Um, brought to mind a passage that says, uh, "Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, both now in the temporal world and in the life." That, that's excellent. That's kind of what I, what I thought. Yeah, it covers both areas. That's right. Very good. And by the way, what Rick just did, feel free to do. We want this to be interactive here, so. Um, if you don't speak up, I'll just keep talking. Yes, David. Okay, uh, go ahead. Can you say that a bit louder or turn around? The, uh, the, the Bible verse that came to mind while Pastor was talking about, where Paul says, uh, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, both in this life and in the life to come. He's talking about, he says, good work, just to focus on spiritual or just we're going to see, I think that's a great verse to, to stand on, and to, then we're going to see other passages that I think also confirm that. Have you ever heard someone, particularly I've heard this when we're talking about uh, creation or scientific studies, the Bible is not a textbook for science or whatever, right? So that's a common argument. So stop trying to use the Bible as a textbook 
four, and then you fill it in. It's not a history book. It's not a psychology book. It's not a, uh, a science book. So the logical extension of this line of thought is to exclude the Bible from any area where there are textbooks, right? So um, if there are more accurate, more detailed, and more precise textbooks, why would we consult the Bible on those subjects? Um, this is a prominent notion, I think, for example, I see it as a pastor in the field of psychology that Christians buy into, is if I sit down with somebody and I want to counsel them from the Word of God about addressing a particular problem, I get a, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's kind of in one ear, out the other. And the next thing I know, we had an appointment with the psychologist, the counselor, the profession, licensed professional counselor, the expert. And y'all know the definition of an expert, right? Anybody with a briefcase that's from more than 50 miles away? Um, so we, we go to the science. We go to the person who has been trained and is modern because the implication is what? The Bible is outdated. The Bible isn't sufficient for such things. And so that's one of the arguments. Uh, it's relegated to being, being an antiquated, outdated book. Modern psychology is the trusted authority. Uh, in other words, the Bible is not sufficient for what ails us. The problem is that the Bible is not exhaustive in matters of religion either. It's not only not exhaustive in matters of science, it's not exhaustive in matters of religion. There are many questions on which there is absolutely no precise, detailed answer given. So look at the controversies that have divided Christians over the centuries, over church government or baptism, and we could go down a long list of them, right? The implication is that Exhaustive detail is needed before the Bible can speak authoritatively on any subject. That's the, in other words, that's the textbook idea. A big, thick textbook with a big index um, that has to be updated every two years so we can sell them again at college, right, for $150 a piece. Um, so... Uh, the attempt to use the incompleteness argument to restrict the authority of the Bible to religious matters must lead logically to the use of the same argument against the religious authority of the Bible because it's not exhaustive there either. So this argument can be used to justify any sort of extra uh, authority beside the Bible and it has been used as that argument has been used in the past. In fact, it's again used. How often is it used in doctrine? How many doctrines do we have that are outdated and old-fashioned? And we we grown beyond that, right? We woke. You've been waiting to use that word, haven't you, Glenn? You've been waiting to use that word, haven't you? Um, so this argument, again, can be used to justify any kind of authority. It's equally valid against religious and ethical, the religious and ethical authority of the Bible. But we need to think about what the Bible itself, the form the Bible takes in its teaching. Is that, is the Bible trying to be a textbook? Is it trying to be exhaustive in, in detail in any of these areas? 
So the other method chosen by those who sought to say the last word on a subject has been to try to cover, to go the other direction and cover everything by means of a few general principles or rules or laws. But what's the fundamental teaching of the Bible? What's, how do we summarize it? And we, we might think immediately of the Ten Commandments or then Jesus, the two greatest commandments. I remember having a friend in college that said, look, I just believe we're to love God and love our neighbor. That's, re- that's really all we need to know. And, you know, if you don't know the Bible, then that argument may carry some weight. The belief then is that everything can be deduced uh, once these general principles are understood. Thus, two possible approaches are at opposite extremes. One tries to state the case uh, to the last uh, minute detail. The other tries to sum everything up under broad general principles. So the fact that, and again, these are not abstractions, guys. These are arguments that are out there. They're the common thinking, really, one, one or the other, or both sometimes. The fact is the Bible does not subscribe to either approach, either that of exhaustive detail or pure and general principles. The best example is um, the laws of Sinai and or the laws recorded in Deuteronomy. Uh, the, f- the first impression of the Sinai and Deuteronomic covenants is of a mass of massive detail. Yet we also have general principles, uh, the most obvious being, again, the Ten Commandments. The interaction of more general laws and laws covering more restricted circumstances is clear in Exodus. So the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20. Following the Ten Commandments come laws that deal with matters of the application of those commandments. So, for example, Exodus 20, verses 22 through 26, we find laws which give an amplification of the second commandment. Let me just read that. Then the Lord uh, said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything uh, to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves an altar of earth. You shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for for, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up uh, by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So there's, again, expounding upon, giving us some details about the second commandment. Another good example is the amplification of the law on stealing in Exodus 22. The eighth commandment does not contain in itself any indication of the appropriate punishment Uh, Hence, this matter must be spelled out in more specific law. There's also the problem of overlap between the Sixth Commandment against murder and the Eighth Commandment against stealing. Is the killing of a thief a case of murder? Exodus 22, 2 and 3 make a distinction. After a thief killed in self-defense when he is in the act of breaking into a house uh, has not been murdered. 
However, when self-defense is not in question, but a person takes revenge on a thief by killing him, then it is murder. So clearly these laws attempt to clarify the application of the Eighth Commandment. Some of them deal with very specific matters, yet it could be certainly argued that they don't attempt to be exhaustive. Deliberate arson is not given a specific law. Could we say then that as far as the Bible's concerned, arson isn't wrong? Well, I doubt if anybody would say this, because if the negligent lighting of fire is wrong, surely the deliberate starting of a fire is even more wrong if it's destructive. So this particular example makes an important point. The Bible often does not restate the obvious. So so what we have in, in the law, for example, is judges who are to use judgment. They're to take the laws and read them and understand the principles involved and the applications and, and the restrictions that may be there, the particulars that God does give, the, the, the fences, if you will, that are put up. And then they're to make judgments as they apply it to particular cases. Just as I said when we started, the Bible doesn't change, but we do. And circumstances do. If we had to have all those details written out, how many books would it take to cover all of life? But we are, we're, we sit and we have, God has given us judges to read what He's given us and then make those applications to these various circumstances and situations in life. Uh, so where the application of a general law is, is not in any reasonable doubt, there's no need to make a law more specific. So biblical legislation is not shaped by any abstract philosophical desire to reduce everything to a few general principles or to formulate a rule for every last detailed case. Uh, it's shaped much more by functional considerations. The general laws are clarified in matters of detail to avoid possible confusion. By the way, I should have mentioned this when I started. A good deal of this is coming from Noel Weeks' book, uh, The Sufficiency of Scripture. It's a banner of truth publication. So if you want a lot more detail, I recommend this book. Yes? Yeah, I think it's significant. You talked about the Bible being sufficient, though not exhaustive in the topics that it covers. And in my conversation with people who are skeptics or doubters or just people I'm trying to get faith to over the years, I also encountered this idea that because the Bible may be incomplete in which it speaks on a topic, a skeptic will conflate the term incomplete with inaccurate. If it doesn't say an exhaustive thing, well then what it says is not right. And what I find when I talk to people about that is that it, what comes up is the, is, the, is the question, what is the most reliable source of what is true about the information you're talking about? Many people will say, well, logic is the highest source of truth, and it's a great tool for figuring out what is. But where the Bible talks directly about the subject, it's not divine revelation, a higher source of what is true than even logic. Because there are crazy things that happen in the world. I mean, the resurrection of Christ is an impossible thing. And yet, 
Peter said, God raised this Jesus from the dead, and we are witnesses of it. I mean, if rare means impossible, so many things, even temporal things, could not have happened, but they did. So, I think people make a big mistake when they say, well, this is illogical, you know, what the Bible says, so it can't be true. And what they're really doing is they have a, a, a given, a starting point. Yes. Where logic is more real than what God has revealed. And, of course, we started this with all Scripture is God. If God says, this is the way it is, how do we know that? And the reason we don't goes back to why it's authoritative. Yes. Yeah, well, we're going to, everything you said, we're going to kind of flesh this out a bit too here as we go, and that's exactly right. The problem, what we're going to start to see emerge is we need to be completely, thoroughly biblical in our own thinking about the Bible itself. And that's our, that becomes our starting point. Uh, and w- what happens is uh, we're going to see people want to turn reason and logic into God rather than as a tool that God gave. And so we want to sit in judgment of the Bible first, and if it passes our test, then we'll let it speak. But we still are going to be the one that determines that. That's, that's the conflict between belief and unbelief. And sometimes, unfortunately, believers uh, imbibe in that thinking. I, was, I just was thinking as you were talking about Deuteronomy 29, 29, um, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So uh, you've heard me do this many times, but how much do you know about the past, present, and future? Almost nothing. Almost nothing. How much does God know about past, present, and future? And you got to know everything in its proper relation to every other thing in order to know any one thing for certain. So what if God tells us something that is certain? We can know that. That doesn't mean there's not a whole bunch of other things that God knows that he doesn't tell us that we don't know. That's why the Bible, got, the Bible couldn't be exhaustive. But it is sufficient. You ever got uh, uh, fathers, you ever told your children to do something? And they want to know why. And you said, what? Sometimes, because I said so. Right now, you're five, and all you need to know is I said it's bedtime. Because if I start trying to explain it to you, you, you're going to want to argue with me about it because you think you know better, but you don't. I I know a lot more about you than you do. I'm your father. So, yes. That's right. That's in Rich Man and Lazarus. That's right. That's right. All right. Um, so, let me see where I am here. The, um, the, this, often this aversion to detail is mixed with a profession of adherence to the principles, especially the principle of love. We've heard a lot of that recently with face masks and all kinds of other things, right? You loved your neighbor. You know, don't you love your neighbor? Okay. Uh, yet this whole attitude to the, against the details that the Bible does give, 
the biblical law ignores the fact that one must know the details in order to catch the principles that motivate those details. How do we love our neighbor? How do we love God the way he says he, the way he says we're to love him? How do we love our neighbor the way he says to love our neighbor? And so it's, it's hell that love may require the breaking of any of the other commandments in specific situations because the commandment to love in this view is absolute and the other commandments are optional. They may have been appropriate uh, expressions that it's argued to, uh, of the commandment to love in certain restricted and dated situations, but they're not necessarily appropriate in a modern situation. Rather, the individual is to deduce for himself the appropriate expression of the law of love in a particular modern situation. Such is the teaching of what's called situation ethics. Well, it depends on what situation you're in. The practical effect of making all ethical decisions, logical deductions, or inferences from the law of love is to reduce man's need for divine instruction. If all I need to know is I'm supposed to love you, number one, what does that presume that I know? What love is. How do I find out what love is? Is love whatever I feel like? Is it a sentiment? Or do I go to the Bible and read the details to find out what love actually is in regard to theft and and uh, taking the shirt off my back or giving my enemy a drink of water or turning the other cheek or... We could go go on and on and on, right? Because the whole Bible is an exposition of those principles of those of the summary of love. Yes. Can we really say any person that we have loved an individual if we do so in a way that expresses hatred toward God? Right. We we can't. And so, law in the Bible is not opposed to grace. What's the opposite of grace? Or what's the opposite of law? Is it grace or is it lawlessness? The law of God is God's telling us how to love. It's how to love him. He says, here's how I want to be worshipped. Here's I don't want it done this way. We just read that out of Exodus. I don't want you to profane the altar by putting your hands on it. I want you to do it this way. I want you to love your neighbor by making sure your fences are in good shape so your ox doesn't get out and tear up his garden. That wouldn't be loving your neighbor. Um, who are you looking at, Will? <laughs> oh, yeah, your fence was down the other day, wasn't it? Your cow got out. So That's right. I just I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> um So biblical law is motivated by a very different spirit than situation ethics. Um, So the the other person says, oh, you just need to have love, and he'll work the rest out for himself. And God says, no. The Bible's not concerned with giving man maximum freedom to do as he thinks fit. It's concerned to show him the practical implication of the law of love that is pleasing to God. If all the world, what is man's chief end? To glorify God. And so the Bible is given to us to tell us exactly how to do that. 
So Paul, who built an argument, for example, for paying ministers from a law on oxen, had a far better appreciation of the structure of the Bible. He didn't need a specific commandment on pay for ministers because, as he himself says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. Is, is it ox... Is it oxen God is concerned with, Paul asked, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. So you see what Paul, how Paul's using the Bible there? Um, what about doctrinal passages? Um, there's quite a variety of doctrinal teaching in the Bible. Um, some topics are treated in great detail, others receive less detailed treatment, right? So the reason for the difference is really plain. Controversial subjects, uh, disputed doctrines receive more extended treatment. In this respect, there is a similarity to legal portions of Scripture which go into greater detail on matters where there might be uncertainty. Misunderstandings of biblical theology as as though it were a rationalistic theology is evident in some of the arguments about the importance of a doctrine. For example, it's been argued that the virgin birth of Christ is really unimportant uh, in the New Testament. Why? Because it is seldom mentioned. So if it's not mentioned often, it must not be that important, right? But who said it? How many times does God have to say something for it to be important? Again, this approach is thinking of the Bible like a textbook with the most important matters coming first or being given the most space. There's not a whole chapter on the virgin birth, so it must not be that important. In the Bible, the frequency of mention has more to do with the controversies of the time. This consideration of the form of biblical teaching and ethics and theology is all aimed to make one simple point. You can't conclude that if the Bible says relatively little on a subject, that it says nothing about a subject. What it says is sufficient on the subject. This is what you need to know. Again, sufficient is not exhaustive. What if you had to know everything to brush your teeth? or to cook a meal. I mean, we could go, or anything. You couldn't do anything. Um, so yet it is, yet such is the power of the way of thinking that some people conclude that the textbook argument settles all questions. Uh, generally, it's not even put, uh, put as an argument. The Bible is not a textbook of science, history, ethics. Hence, they say, our thinking in science, history, ethics may be completely it's okay to be unbiblical. We don't, need to buy, we don't need to refer to the Bible at all. That's a religious book. So the Bible's mode of teaching often uses a mixture of general truths and specifics rather than aiming at, a, at comprehensive detail. So when we say the Bible is sufficient, we are not claiming that it's exhaustive, nor are we trying to reduce it down to some little pithy, simple principle. So the real question is not does the Bible give every last detail in science, history, and ethics, 
The real question is, does the Bible say anything, whether in general or in detail, relevant to science, history, or ethics? And since it is God-breathed, whatever it says is authoritative. So let me just give a, a quick example on science. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. So if you're doing science and the science you're doing doesn't declare the glory of God, then there's something defective in the science you're doing. Yes. That's exactly. And there's many places, we're going to see some of those here in a minute in Scripture, that tell us, well, it turns out that in order to do science and do it right, I've got to have the Bible. Now, the Bible is not an exhaustive textbook on science, but the Bible does speak sufficiently to science and to scientists to provide the foundation of what's needed in order to do science well. So it's general or natural revelation. You know the difference. The Bible is special revelation, then we often refer to general re- revelation or natural revelation, the creation is often taken to be synonymous with science, this amounts to a contrast between the Bible and science. This is going to have some very important political implications for us. Science, which supplies so much more detail, naturally wins, right? If we're going to compare these two. Look at this big doctoral thesis on quarks that somebody spent, you know, 10 years researching and writing papers on and testing and all that. So just because such views have become popular, uh, they should be carefully examined. So what happens is Christians often get intimidated when these discussions come up and we're basically told to sit down and shut up. You don't really have anything to say. Yes, Roy. I'm sorry, what? Description and explanation. Right. So here's another way to think about that is, do the facts speak for themselves? Yes and no. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. And that which is known about God is evident to them, for God made it evident to them through the things that are made, including his invisible attributes. So in that sense, the facts do speak for themselves. But what's the problem? The receiver has a problem. So... If the you know you're in your car and you have the radio on and it's all staticky and you can barely hear it and you're upset, you get home and you call the radio station. What's wrong with you guys? You know I can't. You know I'm getting a horrible signal from you. Well, what if it turns out your radio's broken and the signal's just fine? So the signal God's sending, in other words, the facts in that sense do speak for themselves. But if you're deaf, then you know you're not receiving what's being sent. 
you need, a, I use another illustration, it's like a telescope. If you take the eyepiece out and you look through it, you just see light and it's blurry and you don't know what it is. But it, So you need the eyepiece, the corrective lens, to put it in focus. So the Bible is like that corrective lens. We look at the world and we know there's a God and, and many things are there before us and we start trying to interpret it but here's the instruction book right here. Well, read this. This will tell you what you're looking at. This will tell you what that means. No, we don't want that. We want to be God, and we want to determine good and evil for ourselves, and we want to figure this out on our own. Yes? Well, because it's possible, obviously, to read the Bible and not see. Uh, to be blinded. You know, we're going to talk. I had somebody the other day tell me um, that somebody had given them a Bible. They were a young adult. And they said, I'd grown up <laughs> around church and what have you. But they gave me a Bible and I began to read it. And to use their words, a light came on. Why? How did Peter know that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? Flesh and blood did not show you this but my Father. So the Father and the Spirit have to attend the Word in a way that enlightens. Again, the Apostle Paul said these things are spiritually discerned and the man without the Spirit can't. That's right. So you can, there are all kind of scholars, even think about, um, um, sorry, my brain's not working right now. The uh, um, higher critics are a great example of people who know the Bible in the sense that they can quote chapter and verse, but their goal is to undermine the Bible, to try to find inconsistencies and to undermine at every point. Um, so you get different accounts. For example, the resurrection, how many women were there? Yes. Yes. And, and we can be wrong about the scriptures too. Sure. But this, that's one of the things that this kind of meeting is good for Exactly. And we can have a conversation about them within the confines of the church where the Spirit is active. And we might not come to the exact right conclusion, but we're kind of yes. creating a... Uh, but what, we, what we've agreed on, and we're going to talk about this more tomorrow with the authority of Scripture, but it's true here too, is you and I may disagree over the meaning of a text because you're not sufficient and I'm not sufficient in ourselves but we've, what we've agreed on as believers is the Bible is. Think of it like a math equation, assuming it's sound, and you work that equation and I work it and we get different answers. Should we just assume that there's something wrong with the equation? It could be, right? But, but if, if, in this case, we have good reason to believe that the equation is sound, but you and I get a different answer, what's the, what's the answer to that? Well, we could both be wrong, or one of us could be right and the other one wrong, but we've agreed on the front end that the, the, the equation is sound. In this case, the Bible is sound. We may not be. Maybe we're ignorant. Maybe we just need to study more. Maybe we need to mature more in Christ in order to, to come to the right conclusion. Or, as you said, in the context of the church, 
collectively God brings the church as the pillar and the ground of the truth, not me personally. It's not a matter of private interpretation. So let's go a little bit further on this, on the, on natural and general revelation. Um, what does a person mean? Well, let me back up. Uh, is there any real basis for thinking that general or natural revelation is the same as what we learn today from what we popularly call science? Are there laws of are the laws of science the laws of God? Uh, what does a person mean when he says we should learn about this or that not from the Bible, which is a book of religion and not of science, but from God's general revelation or natural revelation? Behind what he says, there often lies a conviction that what is popularly called science must be right. It's really the authority. Note the current political demand that we accept science as the absolute authority over all other authorities. This has been especially evident during the recent COVID situation. What's that? Bloodletting. Yes. I mean, science has never been wrong, right? Only ten times a day. Yeah, David. I guess it would be helpful to distinguish between uh, true science and science as an expression of God's uh, creation. Right. It's not that we can't learn things, and we're going to talk about this here as we go. It's not that what we call science doesn't yield uh, information, but even that information still has to be interpreted. What does it mean? And so um, does an apple uh, prove creation or does it prove evolution? Here's an apple. It's a fact, scientific fact. Here's a fruit from a tree. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, Dar, does it prove Darwinian evolution? Why not? Because other people would say it does. Uh, that it's that we can trace it back. In other words, the, the construct that gets built apart from God to take what we call facts. In other words, the science is the information the truth, whatever it is, and then that truth has to be interpreted. And I'm, what I'm going to argue is the Bible is sufficient to give us the framework that we need to interpret those facts in an accurate way. What kind of science could we do if we had the proper foundation? Yeah, Nathan? I was going to say that the science, when it's in submission to the Scriptures, uh, keeps the wonder of creation. Yeah, the, the, the caterpillar into a butterfly is like... And, and the science divorced from the beauty of God, what God is doing, and the, the sufficiency of the scriptures reduces it to just the scientific process, and it's boring. I've told this story, and I, I, won't, I won't mention a name, because uh, this is being recorded, but let's just say David had an architect that designed and built his house. And I remember talking with him. He was not a believer. 
standing out there, and their house had been framed, the timber frame house. Just beautiful sitting there. And we, he and I were talking about, uh, he said, I don't see any evidence of God. And I, and I was standing there and I said, huh, I don't see any evidence of an architect. I said, because, I said, stop and think about this, what you just said. I'm looking at a bunch of sticks that have been assembled that obviously say there's an architect. Look right behind that. All those trees, all those animals, the sky, all the life that's in your purview makes that stick figure a stick figure. And you see, and you see no evidence of an architect. According to the following passage, we find a revelation of God through the things he made. Psalm 19. Let's just look at verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That is the creation's voice. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words... To the end of the world. In other words, the creation speaks constantly. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the obvious yet overlooked thing in all these this passage is the general revelation of a revelational God. All of life reveals God. The creation, and you're part of the creation, so you yourself reveal God as the image of God. And, of course, his word, we're going to see, also is further revelation of himself. So everything points in that direction. What's popularly called science makes very little, if any, reference to God. And the whole tendency of its development has been, in fact, to exclude God more and more. There is no evidence of an architect. We can explain this some other way. In fact, what they ought to say is we would accept any other explanation than that one. Why? Because man has an ethical problem. How do we know that? The Bible tells me so. God revealed that too. So without that knowledge, without the knowledge that man is a sinner and in rebellion against God and that is the problem, then we're just stuck in a world that we will never know. Yes, sir. And which gets us back to the, the debate between Christians and non-Christians is not really science or the Bible, which is what we get invited to get back into all the time. I talk to skeptics. Science is a fantastic tool for discovering the way the world works. But it's a, a tool. You can't fix every problem with a hammer. Right? Which goes uh, back to what was said before about uh, the, I love the, the comment about the description versus the explanation. I think that's yep.
They're making claims that aren't even scientific. They're making moral claims. Yes. In the bar of scientific language, and we just accept the science. We say, well, science says you should wear a mask. Well, that's a moral claim about what you should or shouldn't do. It's not even a scientific thesis. And we, but because we're so, we just, we just fall prey to scientism. Well, and a good point of that is, see what we've done? We don't just have biology. We don't have just astronomy. Now we have psychology. We have sociology. All of these have been turned into sciences so that they can be authoritative and tell us when life begins. So ethics is also a science. Uh, So you want to know when life begins? We'll tell you it begins in personhood. Not, it's not biological life. We'll concede that that's a biological life in the womb, but it's not a, a, a life that has value because our, science, our ethical scientists have told us that in order to have value, you have to be a person and have consciousness and self-consciousness and these other things. Now, is that arbitrary? Is that just snatched out of thin air? Why? Why would somebody be motivated to do that? Because they want God not to exist because of what it would imply to themselves if he did. So they must form a framework that excludes it. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It cannot obey God, for it is not even able to do so. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so the problem with science as we know it is it's missing, it's, it's deficit. It's, let me put it another way, since we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, is science is not sufficient. It's missing something. It's not just missing something. It's missing something critical. Yes. Absolutely. Well, and, and we have political science too, by the way. So... Yes. Well, once you reject God, uh, everything's possible. Um, so this leaves open the possibility that there could be a very different science, right? Uh, which wouldn't ignore the revelation of God himself through creation. Since science, as we know it today, misses the main point of God's revelation through the creation, it could hardly be said that we should be regarding it as an authority. Science is a servant to God, and when it's used as a servant to God and it glorifies God, then it does some good things. What could that science be expected to learn from creation if it started at the place where God says to start? Now, I want to wrap up here in the next few minutes. Uh, Thanks for the input um, and keep that up. I want to just look at a couple other passages here. And then um, another example, seen Psalm 119, uh, 89-96. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth. 
and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances or laws for all are your servants. All what? All things, all created things. The sun, the moon, the stars. Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. I have seen your con- seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Here is expli- it's explicitly said that the heavens and the earth are established according to the commandments of God. All things are established according to God's commandments, for all things are servants of God. The thought that emerges from from this psalm is that all creation is under God's law. So the believer finds the path of obedience to God's written law. The heavenly bodies find it in God's commands to them. So the sun and the moon were put there by God to one rule by day and one by night. They're his servants. Um, These passages, which are often pointed out as passages teaching general revelation, emphasize the importance of God's word for the believer. They don't teach the believer to look to the creation and away from uh, the revelation of God and his word. Rather, we should see the obedience of the creation to its glorious Lord and also submit ourselves to the command of the Lord. That's the point. The creation's doing what God said to do. We should do what God says to do. And so um, two, two main passages I'd point out, Romans 1, uh, the whole, you know, from 18 to the end of the chapter, really into chapter 2 is great. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, this verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, Dr. Bonson used to use the illustration of the guy in the uh, in the swimming pool and they're playing volleyball uh, uh, and he gets the ball and no, it, nobody's looking. He pushes it under him and and then everybody's looking for the ball and he's going, where is, I don't know where it is. And that's the unbeliever suppressing the truth, but he's in contact with it all the time. And if he lets up for a second, what happens to that ball? Pops up. <laughs> There it is. You can't get away from it. You can't not be in contact with it at all times. But man has an ethical problem. He's a sinner. He, he's opposed to God. He, God is his judge. Just like Adam hid himself, so the unconverted man hides himself from God. He has to get rid of God. He has to uh, remove God because he's got a legal problem, an ethical problem. So he suppresses the truth because what may be known about God is manifest in them. They're created in the image of God, right? For God has shown it to them. So when somebody says, I am an atheist, we don't need to be necessarily rude at that moment. But what we say to ourselves is, no, you're not. And you know how I know that? Because God told me you're not. And he knows better than you do. He knows that you know that that's not true. He will say, God doesn't exist, and I'm mad at him. 
that which is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So the, the architect who says, I see no evidence for God, was lying. That's not true. What he should have said is, I'm like a little kid who says, I don't like spinach. And if I don't see it, then I don't have to deal with it. I'll just cover my eyes. No one blinder than he who won't see. Even his eternal power. God says, this isn't some general thing. Even my invisible attributes, including my eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without an apologetic, without an excuse, without a defense. Acts 14, 14 through 17. But when the apostle, apostles and Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? Remember, they thought they were gods. We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. The kindness of God is intended to do what? According to Romans, lead us to repentance. So men have not received, embraced, and acted upon the revelation that they've been given. No evidence? No, you're, you, you live in the evidence. The evidence engulfs you 24-7. Like the psalmist, Paul's main point is not to direct men to scientific study of natural phenomena. He is concerned to direct them to the truth that God has revealed in a different way. Um. All right, I'm going to skip over to one last thing. I always have more than I can do here in our time, and we can have some more discussion. Um, Two other passages then. One is the rest of Psalm 19 on the sufficiency of Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Again, I think of Second Timothy three seventeen about being equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what if you don't fear the Lord? You've gotten that first button in the wrong buttonhole. Yes. Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. 
They, the, the judges of the earth have conspired against God to get rid of his word. We don't want God telling us what to do. And Psalm 2 says, he, he who sits in the heavens laughs. I picture it as a belly laugh. <laughs> Watch this. And then he turns very serious and says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. One more passage, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Again, recommend Noah Week's book for much more detail on this. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God, the Bible. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Verse 14 is the one I want to focus on, though. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, who are mature. That is, and he's going to define maturity here, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, what was he talking about? The oracles of God. The mature are those who by reason of use have their senses, their spiritual faculties exercised. And that's the word where we get our word gymnasium. You've worked out in the word of God. Now you can tell the difference between good and evil. Can't everybody tell the difference between good and evil? As far as I can see, I don't see anything wrong with living with my girlfriend. Yeah, that's the problem as far as, as, far as you can see. Blind men can't see. Only those who have exercised in the word have their senses sensitized in such a way that they can discern what's actually good and what's actually evil. There's the ethical component. We could apply the same thing to science. Only those who have had these things exercised are able to interpret the true meaning of what this data is, is, can, can truly receive what's being sent. Bottom line is the Bible is sufficient. It has told us what we need to know for all of life. Now, again, I want to close with just emphasizing, am I saying we shouldn't study atoms or medicine or rocket science? No, that's fine. That's exercising dominion over the earth. The Bible tells us to do that, to go out and to, to weed the garden and to uh, exercise dominion and, in the name of Christ, to do that to the glory of God. So that's a good thing. And each of you do that in your work. Uh, so we're not against that. We're, to, to say we're against the abuse of something doesn't mean we're against the use of something. All right, let's take a break for uh, five minutes if you want some more refreshments, and then we'll sit down and just talk uh, further about this subject.